from above. It's a new year, and each oyster I open re-injures my two-seam shoulder, my curveball bones. At the baseball fields, we believed in both pearls and the American dream. At the baseball fields, we were always almost abducted. There, I ate only Swedish fish and kissed the most beautiful girls, ducked behind dugouts. I remember their flowering Nokia phone cases, mainly, and how they all knew I was a boy and whispered so. While I'm in the air, flying coach, I still count the diamonds, each a gemstone cut from the grassland. Each time I've been kissed, I smell sunflower seeds. I smell yellow before she even arrives. That was Caleb Ray Candrilli's poem, From Above, from our September-October issue. We could just do a take where we start in Medias Race. Um, but how would we even do that? I don't know. <laughs> Hi, I'm Elizabeth Scanlon, and this is the American Poetry Review Podcast. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Hannah. Hi. Hello. <laughs> um, I do. I, I lean back in my chair and just echo through the whole room uh, when I laugh like that. But here we are. Um so as we were talking about last time, we actually didn't even, we, we keep sort of teasing our November, December issue, and we'll continue to tease it, uh, because we have another topic this week that we wanted to talk about um, to refresh your memories. We started talking about great first lines. Hmm. Yes, great first lines. Um, and I, I mean, this is something that I think about a lot because I, I mean, I think people who write poems think about this a lot because you're always wanting to arrive, you know, with great drama or um, some kind of excitement. Uh, Let me ask you a question. Yes, sure. Mm -hmm. I have a way in. Um, My question is, how important is the first line of a poem to the slush pile? Right. I was going to ask a similar question is like, do you think that you have a fascination with beginnings as with an editorial eye. Um, yeah. And that's bleeding over into this sort of, I mean, of course, I think that's, I think that's totally valid. I think that reading as many submissions as, as we do a great first line is going to have an impact, right. And stands out. So very much like when you're reading many, 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 um, submissions that if you have, a you know, a springboard that, compels you to keep reading it's already winning right which also goes for like when we read the book prizes like the first poem in the book or the first poem in the five that you send like beginnings um as a whole yes totally valid um although in this instance what i was observing or just i don't know meditating upon is that when we started talking about some great first lines and I was thinking about ones that just came to mind, I started noticing patterns that I didn't really realize that I had before. So before we get too far down this path, let me just say that the very first one that made me um, dwell and dwell upon it is 
the great classic, in my opinion, Song by Bridget Pegeen Kelly, um, which, you know, is, is a long poem, but just to focus on that first line, this first line, listen, there was a goat's head hanging by ropes in a tree. That's just one line. Right? Yeah. That's just one line. It's not even a long first line, but I dwell on that first line and return to it in my mind so often because it has, it has, it, there, there's so much happening in there right from the get go. Right. It has a command. It has a shocking image or not even shocking, but like an image that stops you in your tracks. Right. Um, and it has a, a cadence. It has a, uh, like an, an automatic sort of dialogue. You're drawn into a dialogue because it is, it's bossing you around a little bit. Right. And I love that. One of the things that I think all great first lines do, and that one does as well as it grounds us in some very important way as to how the poem is going to unfurl itself. Right. And, um, listen is an aggressive move. Yes. In totally. a poem. Um, I was thinking, uh, tangent, I was thinking of this old panel that used to happen with uh, David Baker and Stan Plumley mm-hmm. and um, Where? It, uh, at when? AWP, and okay. it would happen every year, right? It was like this oh. lyric moment, mm-hmm. um, and because Stan was a teacher of mine, I would go mm-hmm. dutifully uh, <laughs> to it. And I remember one year, and it, what was great about it was they would take on something like poem beginnings or poem endings. I remember... Uh. Um, someone speaking to mouth shapes of endings one year, very, very specific craft elements. They would write these essays and then they would read them. There's a book of them. It's very good. Um, But I remember there was a, um, there was once uh, in one of the essays, it was David Baker. I could act like I don't know, but it was David Baker. (laughs) Throws his hands out to the sides as if to, make M dashes and says, <laughs> and this is the important part. Okay. And then years later I was reading the essay, M dashes, <laughs> and this is the important part. So getting back to the poem, I think what's so interesting is that song is a story that's being told to us. Yes. And the first word is listen. Right. Um, so often we have poems that are telling a story and there's a question, is the point of the story the story or the telling? Mm-hmm. And here... It's the telling. And we're told that from the first word. Right. It's really deep to me. Right. Well, and I mean, yes. And uh, I think that opening with listen puts us in a kind of colloquial space too, right? Where it's like, it's not, um, it's not a lecture. It's not a formal, um, you know, oration. It's like somebody is kind of like leaning into that elbow and is like, listen, you know, like there is a, there is a, yeah. a warmth to it Absolutely. that I find really appealing. I think what listen does for me is like put me in a sort of like Canterbury Tales sort of space huh? where it's like, um, you know, the oral tradition, someone is mm. here to tell you something um, it's like ballady, like I don't know. There's something mm-hmm. that's like old world um, poem gotcha. storytelling yep. about it to it. Yeah, 
I, I thought I found that personally to be a through line with all of the like beginnings of poems that I picked out right? for today was like a sort of oral tradition storytelling balladeer moment. Excellent. Um, Give me one. What yeah. Do you got? What okay. do you got? What do we have? What do we have? I mean, um, I'm, I'm so I'm so interested that you that you say that, that that was like appearing in your selections as well, because like I was saying before, I was like, I don't know what this says about me as a personality, that so many things that I that come to my mind are are like have that push mm. that have a little bit of I mean, of course, you know, I also think of uh, though we might have complicated feelings about John Berryman, we have life friends is boring. We must not say so. And even though tonally that's completely different, it still has the must in there, right? It still has a little yeah. bit of a command. Um, but go on. What were you, what were you pulling out? Let's see. Um, I, well, I was also noticing that a couple of these are poems where the title functions as the first line, Yes, um, which I think helps you as a poet, if that's what you're choosing to do, like get more space out mm-hmm. of that beginning moment because mm-hmm. the first line is such like um, limited real estate. <laughs> um, <laughs> so if you elongate that to like a title and then a first line as like an opening sentence, I think you get more bang for your buck uh-huh. or something. But anyway, I, feel um, you. I pulled out um, Eduardo Corral's In Colorado, My Father Scoured and Stacked Dishes oh, yeah. in a Tex-Mex it- restaurant is like, the next bit of that sentence. Yes. Um, I love that poem. I also think it has the sort of, I love Eduardo Carl's work, but mm-hmm. I, this poem um, has like a setting um, moment, which so does the Bridget, right. Bridget P. And Kelly You're poem. immediately in a yeah. time and a place mm-hmm. that has sensory information. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think in the same way that title slash first line um has you know a strong sense of imagery a strong Mm -hmm. like a strong sense of setting um and it feels like a story that is that is about to happen I don't know I pulled out that one I pulled out um Brenda Shaughnessy's I Have a Time Machine oh I love her um I love her which is the first poem in her book So Much Synth Mm -hmm. um what, give me the line. I love that book, but I don't remember the yeah. very first line. Well, the title is I Have a Time Machine, uh-huh. but unfortunately, it can only travel into the future at a rate of one second per second. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Um, and like, it doesn't, It it's more futuristic maybe in vibe, but it still has that like, I don't know, I've lived and I'm here to tell you about it right. sort of moment. Right. Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, it, it has so much, it has so much humor, but yes. like, but the humor comes from being very grounded, mm-hmm. right? Like it's just, it's actually just giving you like a, a pure fact in a different vessel. Right. You know? Yeah. So good. Well, can we have the rest of that poem? Sure. Yeah. Oh my God. That's always. Would you love to hear the rest of this poem? Yeah. All right. Should I read it? I'll read it. Please do. Um, I have a time machine, but unfortunately it can only travel into the future at a rate of one second per second, which seems slow to the physicists and to the grant committees and even to me. But I managed to get there time after time to the next moment and to the next. Thing is, I can't turn it off. I keep zipping ahead while not zipping, 
And if I try to get out of this time machine, open the latch, I fall into space, unconscious, then desiccated. And I'm pretty sure I'm afraid of that. So I stay inside. There's a window, though. It shows the past. It's like a television or fish tank. But it's never live. It's always over. The fish swim in backward circles. Sometimes it's like a rearview mirror, another chance to see what I'm leaving behind, and sometimes like blackout, all that time wasted sleeping. Myself, age eight, whole head burnt with embarrassment at having lost a library book. Myself, lurking in a candled corner, expecting to be found charming. Me, holding a rose, though I want to put it down so I can smoke. Me, exploding at my mother, who explodes at me because the explosion of some dark star all the way back struck hard at mother's mother's mother. I turn away from the window, anticipating a blow. I thought I'd find myself an old woman by now, traveling so light in time, but I haven't gotten far at all. Strange not to be able to pick up the pace as I'd like. The past is so horribly fast. Mm. The past is so horribly fast, yeah. I mean, that could we could go all yeah. <laughs> into a whole other amazing last lines. I mean, that's the conversation for another time, though. Sure. But that, is, that one has both. It does. Perfectly bookended, right? Yes. When I gave birth, I expected a baby. When I gave birth, I expected a baby, but I got a prisoner of war and disposable underwear. I expected a baby, but got a complimentary chef-prepared celebratory dinner for two and a $35,000 bill. Before I gave birth, I was suspicious that not a baby, but an entire winter would rush forth, what with the tumult of weather into which my body was forced. When I gave birth, I expected a baby, but became a wound, desecrated, an animal. I was handed the screaming Baltic Sea. I expected a baby, but was presented with a public figure and a conjoined pair of ceramic shoes that said, blessed. When I gave birth, I was shown to a cot in the wing teeming with the apocalyptic gossip of machines. I was handed a mess of wires and an accelerated course on how to subpoena breath. When I gave birth, I longed for a baby, but was given lilacs, plastic ones, because that kind never dies. That was Katie Condon from our September-October issue. Stephen, what do you have? Well, I, I feel like, you know, great first lines is kind of like great movies or something. Like, we wouldn't want to say our favorites right. <laughs> as much as, you know, that would take out all of the other great first lines which we have in our <laughs> mind. Um, and I also want to, this is like my very difficult self. I want to preface by saying that what I went looking for was not great first lines. <laughs> Way to follow a, the rubric. Yeah. There's a contrarian impulse well, strong within you. I, one of the great things I, I've learned from editing is what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, the first 10 whatever first 10 words, first 10 pages, first, you know, that the thing that gets the reader in. And I think that there's something that's important about that. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we are asking someone else to enter our world and mm -hmm. we should be respectful with that and uh, that attention. Um, but I, I found 
I think over the last year or two, I found myself increasingly contrary <laughs> to the first line that is great. And then that energy of the first line has to be held the whole time. Well, yes, but here's something that just occurred to me while you were, while I was listening to you is that like, I think to some extent, part of my excitement about great first lines is an editorial impulse, right? Because we don't get a great first line unless someone has really done the work of cutting until it hurts, mm -hmm. you know? Because I think that most of us, most of the time, have a really long on-ramp mm -hmm. until we get to, like, what we're most excited about saying, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it takes... I mean, I think that's somehow somehow just the way the mind works most of the time, right? Mm -hmm. Is that you're you're kind of swimming around until you can grab the thing, right? Absolutely. Um, and so when I see like a really gut punch or bright star of a of a first line, I'm like, oh, that's some good editing, right? <laughs> right? Well, so my poem is is actually by someone who's a pretty famously good editor, mm -hmm. Elizabeth Bishop. Oh yes. Um, and I think you'll know what I mean. Um, and the poem, not, uh, not a B-side here at the fish houses. Yes. <laughs> Although it is a cold evening. I don't know that that makes the, but then, and I know I'm breaking the rules. <laughs> Down by one of the fish houses, an old man sits netting. Yeah. And, I, and I'm grabbed. Yeah. Three lines in, right. you know, longer than one line. One sentence. One. Well, it's the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> it's the beginning clause. Um, I of, think we could make yeah. an argument, though, for that as a first line. I even think so if it's too. broken over three phrases. I think, right? I think so, too. And I, yeah. I, I guess I want to just open the space to sort of um, the opening movement, right. Mm -hmm. right. which can be a little slower burning mm. and yet just as gripping. Right. And I think like what we saw from uh, um, both of those other poems, very grounding in space, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. might say more about the three of us than all great first lines. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not trying to make a, no, a, a comprehensive listicle. That's too... That's too um, but aren't you interested <laughs> I mean, in what it would be? It's not... Yeah. That's not what we're going to be able it to do. It feels impossible, though. I mean, right. because that that's just a, a kind of um, ranking that I don't... Sure. That my mind just isn't really... I don't feel capable of. Yeah. I kind of, you know, I'm more, I'm greedier than that. Like I, I just want to keep gathering. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, absolutely. The, the specificity and the sensory information of that opening movement is, is so good. And it right? tells you, tells you what's going to be there. Yeah. I think that's the, the big thing. It, it creates the shape of the vessel that we're going to spend our time in and right. for the poem. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like a stage setting, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the lights coming right. up on something that's I, already interesting. I we, was totally thinking about this as well. Cause I'm like a musical theater person, <laughs> fan. Yes. like that. My favorite, like I love Sweeney Todd. Right. And like the opening scene of Sweeney Todd is like this ballad of Sweeney Todd and you like Love know it. all the characters and right. at the end he himself comes on to tell you, Sweeney Todd tells you his, uh -huh. you know, give you a teaser about what's about to happen. And I don't know, right. like that's also how I felt with a lot of these Right, it's exciting. That, yeah. It immediately gives you mm -hmm. some some sense of like where you're going. Right. And that is, yeah, that's inviting. Well, we were keep on 
queuing up the uh, the current November December oh, yeah. issue. We should we should absolutely and get around to talking about we, it. We, we flip it over to the back and oh, yeah. um, and here's a great first line as well. I wonder if if that's our trans transition. There you go. Essay on speaking by Dana Isakawa. Yes. This is Dana Isakawa reading Essay on Speaking from our November-December issue. Essay on Speaking A person supposedly speaks 16,000 words a day, meaning the world utters 128 trillion words a day. 612 million Moby Dicks, 228 million war and pieces, thousands of I, chair, here, go, lettuce, oh shit, no rice, street o'clocks across the globe. When I speak a lot in a day, I feel like a shop at closing time, ransacked displays of empty crates and trays. Some days it's hard to get past 2,000 words. People pay to be silent for weeks, The one study found 67% of men opted for an electric shock over 15, 15 minutes of silence. 25% of women opted for the shock. I might choose the zing of electricity out of curiosity, though I usually prefer quiet. Even now, when people call on me in groups, I feel like, coffee that sloshes out of its cup when a car breaks too fast. I have to push the self into the audience, rehearse lines at home for my role as human in the city. Is this seat taken? You dropped your subway stop. If I don't speak up, others behead my sentences at the subject and I vanish again, mistaken for another nowhere. Saying nothing is like claws scrabbling against a glass tank. Not that I have anything to say that will amaze the room, but all it takes is a few words, then a few more, to join the chorus of mutterings, the world's unwieldy text. Even if when I look you in the eye and speak, you are on another block, down the path, talking shit about some other day, even if you are far on to the next shock, the next astonishment. Person supposedly speaks 16,000 words a day. Yep. Again, we have like a, like a, a big juicy fact. Fact, yeah. And right? I think sonically, I was looking at that line and listening to song. Mm. And they're surprisingly similar. You're right. I think the Metrically, wilt is different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think song goes up and and um, essay on speaking kind of goes down, yeah. but they're very. It's I think metrically and mm-hmm. also maybe um, this is just hearing it one time while looking at the other one, but a, a similar syllable count. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. That's an interesting observation that they 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 both kind of come at us with a very confident statement, right? Which is reflected in that in that. Um, that scansion. I, I bet song is the sort of poem that you hear if you go looking for it, you hear it over and over and over again in contemporary poetry. Right? That it is, that it, it kind of has what, um, oh, now I have to go look up my source, but the, the phrase that's coming to my mind is what 
Allen Ginsberg used to call American sentences, uh-huh. that it was like a certain cut that was, uh, I'm forgetting what the exact syllabic count was, uh-huh. but that he, he had this sort of theory that like the great American sentence was always this kind of metrical uh-huh. thing. And I, I think that, I think that these are both pretty close to that, right? Uh-huh. That it's, that it has that kind of, um, like I said before, that kind of confidence, that kind of like, uh, uh, grounded statement. Yeah. I mean, also, I think that so many of us, I, this, this gets to a different craft element, but revision. Uh-huh. What do you read when you re- revise? Hmm. Say more. What well, do you mean? Like, what do I read, like, for pleasure when I'm trying not to do my work? <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, like, to get in your head, I mean, maybe this is not your practice. It, it should be more of my practice, but... You know, I, I know the poets to read uh, that will put the right ideas into my head uh-huh. as I'm revising, which it, which has, has something to do with going against my impulses. Oh, I see. Yeah. And, and, um, so these are like touchstones, right? Yeah. Touchstones. Okay. So these are people who like kind of show you the way or, right. yeah. Okay. Which like mine is CK Williams. Got you. Right. And, big one. uh, right. Big one, big lines. Yeah. Big ideas. CD Wright is one mm-hmm. for me. There you go. Um, because I think that she has such a, she has such a fantastic balance of like mysticism and physicality, which is something that like, I'm always interested in. Um, one big self was like such an amazing project of hers. Like anyway, but go on. Well, I I just, (laughs) you know, I, I think there are every once in a while you can hear poems like, um, they feed, they lie and you can hear all the time. Yes. You go, you go, okay, you were reading, Philip right. Levine, right. as you were editing, right, and good, yeah. <laughs> oh, and um, and I don't. That's what that's. I think that's what I was thinking of with song that you can hear yes. the sort of you can hear the influence yeah. underneath, and and even if it wasn't a direct influence of the poem, you can just hear the importance of song to the language. Absolutely. The, as uh, as I forget who says it, but uh, the echo chamber of of our art form, right. That's really interesting, though. I mean, I, I, uh, that line of questioning is really interesting to me because I wasn't so much aware that I was doing that, but now that you described it, I, I can see how I do. I also, you know, and maybe this is just some of it is, is like first influences that we return to. Like, I always, um, I have a very old, um, you're cringing. Why are you cringing, Stephen? No, I was just thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Are you cringing at your own innermost? Um? I was. Well, I, I was thinking of 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 my. So I don't want to derail you, but I was thinking of of the different poets that I uh-huh. read to get the engine started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the one thing that I was remembering though is that I have a very old uh, City Lights edition of um, translations of Jacques Prévert, the the old City Lights edition of Parole, um, which are like some of like the simplest poems, right? Because he was doing a, a minimalism of it, right? Um, but I do return to that often because there, even though it is a work in translation or maybe especially because it's a work in translation, there's a lot of um, really... Uh, energetic choices to happen on like a grammar level that there are like the prepositions and the, and the compression of those poems 
is instructive to me, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that like, as we all are writing, like it's so useful when you can um, identify something that is, yeah, that is, that is, that's like a, a map, that is a roadmap to certain things that maybe you, you do or don't do especially well. Like, right. you know, interesting. This has been the American Poetry Review Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. 